It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 69, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Alan Philo is the specialty crops consultant for Midwestern BioAg, a biological fertilizer company in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, where he works with fruit and vegetable growers around the country to help them develop approaches to optimizing soil conditions for plant growth. He also runs a pasture-based livestock farm north of Dodgeville, Wisconsin. Alan was one of the first guests on the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and I've been asked again and again to get him back on the show. Alan digs into cover cropping, from the biology and theory behind it to the nuts and bolts about how to make it work on the farm. We discuss how cover crops work to get sugar-rich calories into the soil to feed the microbes, and how you can use cover crops to create microclimates to break down crop residues. Alan shares nuts and bolt details about how he and his clients have used cover crops to disrupt pest cycles, reduce pest and disease pressure through rapid biological cycling, and control annual and perennial weeds. We also discuss the tools and techniques that Alan recommends for managing cover crops, from establishing a strong stand to managing the resulting mass of vegetation, cover crop selection, practical approaches to cover crop blends, and using cover crops to manage the pre-harvest interval for manure applications are also on the table. I always learn a ton when I talk to Alan. This was no exception. Enjoy! The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by FarmFan. Ever wish you could text a reminder to all of your customers? FarmFan does just that. Increasing market turnout and sales week after week. FarmFanApp.com or see farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash sponsors for 25% off your 6- or 12-month subscription. Alan Philo, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hello, Chris. Thank you so much. Or I, I should actually say welcome back. We had such a great conversation last time, back in episode 3, about kind of the basics of soil fertility that I wanted to get you back and today and and dig into talking about some, some specifics about cover crops. And this show is going to go live in probably in, in late May, early June. And I think that's a really smart time for people to be thinking about what do I want to do with cover crops for this year? Yeah, that actually is right at a, a transition time um, for a lot of, for a lot of people. Uh, the last of any sort of winter cover crops are going to come out at that point uh, in a lot of areas of the country. And the other thing that you're going to see is uh Maybe even some early spring crops are going to be out of the field. So it's a great time for people to be establishing summer cover crops um, right then, you know, with the intention of having a, having a cover crop for the next, you know, three to four months until frost comes. So uh, hopefully it's good timing. So let's go ahead and have you start, Alan, by telling us a little bit about where you are now, what you're doing, and, and how you got to this point. Sure. So presently, I am the specialty crops consultant for Midwestern BioAg. Um, I believe I'm entering my fifth year now in that capacity. And um, at the same time, I, um, when this comes out, I will have just finished up uh, being a student at the University of Wisconsin um, in the soils department, as well as uh, ru running a farm, owning and running a farm just north of Dodgeville, Wisconsin, that is primarily uh, centered around livestock uh, production and pastures. Um, so that's where I am. That's where I am now, and it's it's been a little bit of a long and winding road to get here. Before before all those things happened, I was the field operations manager at Gardens of Egan, 
just south of the Twin Cities, um, where I was in charge of uh, fertility, cover crops, um, rotation planning, and just about all the field tillage and weed control on that farm. And I, I held that position for three years before I moved on to Midwestern Bioag. And and with being the specialty crops guy at Midwestern Bioag, what does that involve? Well, the sort of funny way of saying it um, that I like to say sometimes is that if it isn't corn or beans or goes through a cow in some form and you call the company, you'll probably end up with me. So I consult on lots of small scale to even large scale vegetable operations. Um, I've given recommendations out for chestnut trees, uh, for aronia berries, for blackberries. Um, if you can name a crop that is uh, grown and sold in the upper Midwest, um, I have probably given some sort of fertility recommendation on that. So <clears throat> that's kind of the really wide scope of what I do. Um, a lot of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is um, in the spring, I'm answering fertility questions for farmers, um, developing and putting together fertilization plans for them, giving advice on crop rotations and cover cropping schemes. And then during the summer, I'm out actually doing farm visits, assessing crop health, looking at soil health, uh, solving or helping to solve uh, problems on the on the farm in real time, and then um, and then in the winter, I I like to uh, come back around and and check in with farmers and uh, see how the year went, and then just kind of do continued development of plans and assessment of the growing season in order to help that farmer uh, basically find what their limiting factor is on the farm, which isn't always fertility. Um, you know, and, and I try to keep within that wheelhouse of uh, fertility, soil management, and um, disease and pest management. And um, and like I said, sometimes, you know, those aren't always the limiting factors on a farm. And so the, the other thing that I also try to do is be honest when I reach the uh, limitations of what I feel like I can help a farmer with and uh, direct them to proper resources. So that's that's my role. So where do cover crops fit into that? You're studying soil science. You're working for a fertilizer company. I mean, cover crops obviously are an important piece of organic farming and, and particularly organic vegetable farming, but it doesn't actually seem like a straight line connection to me. I think it's a lot more straight line than people may think. Um, first on the fertility aspect, um, there, especially on organic farms, certain uh certain parts of fertility, particularly nitrogen, can end up being expensive or difficult to get a hold of in some sort of dry form that you can put on your field. And, and that's one of the things that cover crops can really help with is that actual uh, growing of nutrients. Um, Gary Zimmer, my, my friend and mentor, likes to say, he says, remember, nitrogen is the only thing, uh, only fertilizer that you can grow, you know, on your farm with the help of a legume. So that's, an, that's one place where I feel like there is a very uh, direct line. As far as you know, soil science goes, their, um, soil health has been a really hot word in soils for probably the past couple years here. 
And while that's kind of a loaded term, and we might get into that a little bit later um, about what soil health is, uh, this is actually one of the things that cover crops can help the, the most with, is, is creating better soil health on the farm, repairing damage to soils that we cause through what we need to do to grow a crop in terms of tillage and cultivation. And, uh, and so cover crops are one of the best tools that we have for maintaining the health and friability of the soil, as well as breaking up pest and disease cycles on the farm and can even be used in some cases to help control um, weed issues. Again, that's, a, that's another really big area that they can help on an organic farm uh, where we don't have access to um, you know, pesticides and herbicides. So for me, it's always been a very important part of how an organic farm operates and was really at Gardens of Vegan. What I put a lot of my time into was um, figuring out what kind of cover crop blends I like to use and observing how those cover crop blends interacted with the soil environment and with nutrient levels and how they affected the growth of the crop in the next season. So let's dig into a little bit of the nitty gritty when it comes to these things that you talked about, soil health, pest cycles, weed control. I mean, I think that we all kind of have a vague idea of how cover crops contribute to soil health, but you're so good at boiling it down and actually explaining how that actually works. I'd like to hear it from you. The way I like to talk about this is really in terms of energy. And when I say energy, I'm not talking about some sort of like new age energy. I'm actually just literally talking about calories. I mean, uh, you can actually think about this in terms of your own health um, and well-being, which is that if I uh, restrict your calorie supply, um, you are going to run out of energy and your body's not going to be able to do the very things that it needs to do to stay healthy, which is, you know, basic repair and generation of, of new cells. Um, one of the fascinating things about this idea is that, is that this is something that happens across um, all complex systems. Um, all complex systems basically run off of uh, calorie inputs or energy inputs, solar inputs. You know, if you look at any sort of plant ecosystem, if I cut sunlight off um, that ecosystem and I cut the energy source out of that ecosystem, that ecosystem is going to break down. Um, another really fascinating but sort of tangential uh, picture of this can actually be seen in the way um, like the economy functions. Um, money is actually an abstraction of the amount of energy um, in the system. And you can actually see that when the economy is healthy, there's a lot of money and capital flowing through the economy. And when the economy is unhealthy, what's actually happening is that that amount of money and capital is actually decreasing and is retracting. So it doesn't really matter what complex system you want to look at. This idea of energy flowing through, uh, flowing through a system in order to create health really goes across the board. But when we look at soils, what's happening is we have to ask ourselves, where is that energy coming from? And who's using the energy, right? So in the soil system, uh, to answer that first question, who's using the energy is microbes. Uh, microbes are what 
um, and the microbiological activity is really what creates good soil structure. There's lots of excellent studies out there in the scientific literature and wonderful anecdotal stories um, on lots of farms, you know, that where you can really see that there is a direct correlation between the amount of microbial activity that you have in the soil and how good the soil structure is. Um, and then you have to, the next question, of course, is, well, well, what's controlling that microbial activity? And again, that's really energy going into the soil system. And energy gets into the soil system in several different ways. Um, obviously, you can put an energy source in and till it in, like compost or manure or a green manure crop. But there's other ways that energy gets in there, too, that people don't necessarily think about, which is uh, plants are constantly pumping sugars. And again, remember, sugars are just a condensed form of calories. Um, anybody who's trying to go on a diet knows this very well. Um, sugars get pumped down into the soil constantly by plants in order to feed microbes, because the way a uh, soil system works um, that isn't under human control is that the plants feed the microbes and the microbes are actually like breaking down things in the soil to uh, allow for nutrient release back to the crops. So there's basically like a, a symbiotic relationship there. They're kind of all part of the same ecosystem that's being used to cycle nutrients there. But, in a, but that still holds true to a certain level for an agricultural setting. And what's happening is when we grow a crop, especially a crop that, ha that we haven't programmed, that we haven't bred to produce a, a really big, um, you know, fruit or something that we're going to eat. So that, that plant is a little bit more like the wild plants that you, that you see in the environment. Those pump a lot more sugar down into the soil and that, that sugar and those calories are going to feed those microbes. So again, that's a living plants are a great source of energy for microbes in the soil. You're saying it's pumping energy into the soil. It's, it's pumping nutrients into the soil. What's, what's actually going on there? Well, to be clear, it's actually not nutrients. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about nutrients, we're going to look at nitrogen and phosphorus, potassium, calcium, um, which is a lot more of what we talked about uh, in the first podcast that we did. What we're talking about here is, is sugars. So what's happening is that, you know, plants, are fo plants photosynthesize. Um, and in that process, they're taking sunlight and they're taking energy from the sunlight and they're storing that in chemical bonds. And again, the way that they do that is they make sugar. And then they, can, they use that sugar for various, various things uh, in themselves. So... Um, that sugar is the building block for the lignin and the cellulose that makes up the plant stalk and the plant leaves. It is the building block for a lot of the amino acids and other, um, and even the plant secondary compounds that the plant is going to make that, that, you know, make proteins in the plant or give the, uh, give tomatoes their unique flavors because of these secondary metabolites or they make pigments in the plant. But one of the things that people also forget is that roots can't photosynthesize. Obviously, they're not exposed to sunlight, and they still need an energy system on which to run. And so uh, the plant takes a lot of those sugars and actually pump and pushes them 
down into the root system of the plant and the root system burns energy just like you and I do. So it's taking those sugars and in order to grow or in order to do things like um, uh, even sometimes take water or nutrients from the soil, sometimes those things can require a, a little bit of energy. It's using that sugar as its energy source. But the other thing that's happening is that, you know, there are these symbiotic relationships between uh, the plant and um, the microbial community right around the root zone um, and in the root zone of a plant. And the plant will actually feed that community a certain amount of sugars. So about 50% of all the energy, all the sugars a plant makes are translocated, are pushed down into the root system. And then up to 15 to 20% of all of those sugars are exuded out into the soil environment. So, so you're saying up to up to 10% of, of the, the photosynthetic output of the plant is actually getting pushed out into the soil for the microbes. Yes, that, that's, that's roughly what those numbers um, work out to, is, is about 10% of the photosynthetic capacity of a plant, the total sugars made by a plant, are pushed out into the soil environment. And that can be quite an astounding quantity uh, during the, the course of a year. For some plants, that could actually mean that they're pushing more sugars into the soils, through the root system, during the course of a year than you get, um, than the total amount of energy you would plow back into the soil by plowing them in at the end of the year. Wow. It's, it, it, can be, it can be quite astounding. And the effects that it can have on the soil environment in terms of the capacity of the soil to function in the way we want it to, you know, so the, the way to think about that is how is the, you know, what is it that we want soils to do, right? I'm, I guess I would ask you that question. Can you, you know, you tell me a little bit about like when you think of soils and you think of, you know, what you saw in your farming career and what you know farmers want, what is it that they're asking their soil to do? Well, I want the soil to get rid of water. I want the soil to hold on to water, both those things in the appropriate amounts. And I want that soil to actually provide nutrition to the plant so that it makes it easy to grow. And the way that that water holding capacity and that water draining function takes place is by having adequate pore space in the soil. And, and that is, uh, requires a good aggregation um, of the soil. For instance, like... Um, if you have a really clay soil that, that is not draining well and you dig into that, a lot of times what you'll see is it's almost like um, it's not quite this bad, but it's almost like you're looking at like a mug, you know, you're looking at the same kind of thing that happens when somebody takes uh, clay out, you know, and, and throws right. it in, into a mug and it just kind of looks all smeared together. And there's obviously no way that the water can, can drain through that. And what, what you really want is something that looks more like a chocolate cake, right? You want that nice uh, granulated texture that allows the water to go through, but still has some finer pore spaces where the water can get captured. What makes that, again, is, is microbes in the soil actually gluing that soil together to make houses for themselves. Um, one of the things I like to say is that we aren't the first creatures to, you know, to engineer the environment um, for our benefit. Microbes have been doing this much, much, much longer than we have. 
And and aerobic microbes, um, which are what live in that top six to 12 inches of the soil, want to create a system that is best for the way that they function metabolically. And And what they require is an environment that has some water in it and that has some oxygen in it so that they can function. And so to do that, they have to create a soil that has good pore space. And what's really wonderful about that is that also just happens to be the perfect environment for plants to grow in. Um, And again, if you think about that, that makes sense because, um, you know, before we started utilizing the system to our benefit, uh, you know, plants and soils have been around much longer than humans have been around. And, And so this is a very, very old system that's taking place out there where, you know, Plants are benefiting from the environment that the microbes are making for them, and and um, in order to facilitate that act, that making of that environment, they're actually feeding those microbes uh, as as part of what happens to do that. So to circle back to cover crops, then what we're doing when we're growing cover crops is basically we're just creating more a lot more opportunities on our land for sunshine to get converted into sugar and get pushed into the soil. Yeah, that's exactly right. And cover crops aren't a new idea um, at all. Cover crops are a very, very old idea in agriculture. Um, You know, we have to recognize that agriculture has changed a lot in the last 100 years, right? And one of the main things that's changed is that we have mineral fertilizers that we can put on the soil. And um, the way that we used to always um, get fertility onto a soil, we, we had two methods. One, we could rest the soil, but I don't know if you've ever seen the soil. I've never seen a soil that just rests bare, you know. So a soil, if it left alone, will always grow something on itself. And our other option was basically manure before the development of, you know, modern-day mineral fertilizers. Well, both of those things represent a very large input of carbon, of energy into the soil environment. And that energy, again, is used by microbes to repair the soil. So in that system, the energy for the repair of that damage was being provided just by the way that we had to take care of the soil in order to get uh, mineral nutrients out there. But one of the things that's changed in the last 100 years is now we have been able to concentrate those mineral nutrients and we've, uh, we've made a very different balance in the environment where the amount of nutrients in the environment and the amount of energy going into the soil, you know, might have roughly been sort of like equal um, in a very rough, rough way. You know, if you think of that as a, as a teeter-totter, what's happened now is that, um, is that the amount of, of carbon, of energy going into the soil is very low and the amount of fertility going into the soil is very high. Well, that's been great for increasing production, but over time what that does is, is uh, result in the soils basically running out of energy and they aren't able to repair the damage that we're doing to them you know, on a yearly basis as part of, of growing things. And so what we're doing with cover crops is basically rebalancing that. We are just putting back in um, something that, that honestly traditionally in agriculture has always been a part of agriculture. Um, but has been, uh, but we freed ourselves from the necessity of uh, for a while, and are realizing that that maybe we didn't free ourselves of that necessity, and and that we still need to keep doing those uh, 
we still need to be putting that energy back into the soil. But soil doesn't operate on the same time scale we do. And so that, that slow rundown of soil uh, sometimes can take years to show up. Um, whereas, you know, if a soil doesn't have any fertility, that shows up right away. So that's how, that's how cover crops fit in with, with actually doing, doing the soil building kind of on a nuts and bolts level. And obviously, when you're dealing with a cover crop stand, you've got a lot more plant, uh, you know, both top side and bottom side, making sugars and pumping them into the soil than you do, say, if you're growing a field full of lettuce. Right. Because there's exactly right. more going on there. Um, you know, so what about pest cycles? Where, and, and again, I think this is something where if somebody called me and asked me to give a lecture on, on cover crops, I'd say, I'll say you know, to make soil health and pest cycles and weed control. But how, how do cover crops actually influence pest cycles? Well, part of that actually is very dependent on whatever particular pest you're going to talk about. Um, but for instance, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, we'll pick flea beetles, um, which I always come to my mind because they were the constant scourge um, at, at Gardens of Egan, um, partially because we, we just grew so many brassicas. But uh, for instance, what, what flea beetles do is um, they come out uh, in the fall, they feed on brassicas, right? And, um, and they actually newly hatch out in the fall from, a, from, a, from eggs that were laid in the spring, okay? And they come out and they get on the, they, they eat brassicas in the local environment. And then they basically retreat sometimes to like a hedgerow or just like a field edge. And then they come out in the fall, in the spring again, they feed again, and then they mate. And then they go through a couple different cycles until they basically go dormant and then come back in the fall again. So, you know, if, if you think about that for a second, part of that relies on having brassicas in the local environment or even just having brassica residue, um, you know, in the local environment. And so you can break up those pest cycles by just making sure that when they show up, they don't have brassicas to eat. Um, the, other, the other thing that happens too, though, is that when you are growing something like a uh, cover crop, you have to remember that you're not just breaking a pest cycle, but you're actually making habitat for predators and for other insects that will eat those insects. So not only does an insect perhaps pop up um, and, and spend a little bit of time wandering around looking for a meal, but it's much more likely to encounter something that's going to want to eat it in the meantime. Um, so that's actually just one way that, that you can see that they can uh, effectively uh, break pest cycles. Um, and very similar, you know, with diseases, um, so different soil-borne diseases, different things that are going to um, basically get harbored in residue. Uh, there are a number of diseases, for instance, that maybe uh, maybe in a subclinical level um, in a crop this year, and then you you kind of you you're done with that crop. Uh, you might partially till it in, but maybe all the residue doesn't break down. And so it's actually harbored in that residue for longer. Well, one of the things, um, and, then, and then when you grow that crop the next time, it's still there and it can come out and um, maybe actually damage your crop in some sort of economically, uh, economically damaging way the next time around. Well, when you grow cover crops, um, you're doing a lot of different things again. You're stimulating uh, different microbes in the soil. And those microbes 
um, may actually, I mean, that's a whole ecosystem. It's a whole world down there. They, they can maybe eat some of those pathogenic microbes. Uh, we have to remember that a lot of the places where we get antibiotics from are actually bacteria that have been cultured from soil because that's how microbes fight with each other. They make antibiotics. And, um, and so they can actually exude antibiotics into the, um, into the soil system that can kill off some of these other microbes. Another thing that I've seen personally is that uh, when, you, when you're growing a cover crop, you have to remember that you're, you're not just doing this, this you know, pumping, you're not just breaking these pest cycles, but you're just doing a lot of things that are, for instance, going to hold more moisture in the soil because that soil is covered. You're going to hold the soil in place. But when that, when that soil is held in place and when it's covered and when, when there's more moisture there, that often will lead to better breakdown of any residues that are there any residues that may be harboring some sort of disease or acting as a harbor for pests. And, uh, and when you get those, those uh, residues broken down, it just decreases another, it's getting rid of one more vector, one more way that those pests and diseases can, can come back and get at your crop the next time around. So doing something like, like with my, you know, say I've got a broccoli crop out there, you know, going through and flail mowing the broccoli crop and drilling rye over the top of it is actually going to help make things go faster, basically going to reduce the amount of time that I need in my rotation before I can safely bring broccoli back again. Right. Um, a good example of this and the way that it can lead to faster residue breakdown is, uh, you know, I've grown a lot of kale. And uh, if anybody out there has grown kale or, or uh, something with that, you know, woody of a, of a stock, you know, kale, when it was grown in Ireland, um, they would actually harvest the stalks and use them as winter fuel. I mean, that's how woody, you know, kale stalks can right. be. So, uh, so it's always an issue getting them to break down. You can flail them, you can do all sorts of things. Sometimes they just get chewed up a little bit. But um, I got in the habit of, I, I developed a system um, for getting a cover crop basically into a, uh, a long-term standing crop. Kale is grown all year. So I developed a system where what I would do is right before the final cultivation of the kale, I would actually go through and just with one of those like handheld little whirly bird spreaders, I would, I would put clover, uh, white Dutch clover out onto the field. Now that doesn't sound like a big change and often you wouldn't really even see it for most of the growing season. A little bit of it would germinate, um, you would see a plant here and a plant there and you'd feel bad because you were stepping on these little baby clover plants for the entire rest of the season while you're harvesting kale. What was fascinating is in the fall, um, whether it was from plants that germinated earlier and just made it through or, or that some of that seed actually germinates uh, right in the fall and conditions are, are uh, better for it. What ends up happening is that you would have this gorgeous uh, mat of white clover. Um, that would pop up in the fall and then in the spring would grow often up above, you know, the kale stalks that had been cut and were just laying there. And when you went out there and, and dug underneath that clover, what you would see is that those kale stalks, because they weren't just exposed to the sun and the wind all the time, had taken on all sorts of moisture and there would just be fungal mycelia running through these things like crazy. And so when I would go out to you know, rotivate under, under the, uh, the clover crop as we were getting close to establishment of, a, of the next uh, cash crop, those kale stocks would just fall apart. 
and uh, they would easily till back into the soil environment. So uh, again, you know, something that would often would would be so difficult uh, to get rid of that sometimes we would actually send a crew through the field, you know, to pick up the kale stalks. Um, right. You just didn't have to do that anymore, you know. Um, and that's energy going back into the soil environment again. So it's just amazing the way that those cover crops can can really lead to just um, sometimes a more natural breakdown, a little bit more natural system on the farm, and, and they, they can do some of that work for you. You know, in the in the food safety world, I know one of the things that they found, and I've seen research papers on this topic, that they found that, that planting cover crops and using that as part of the rotation on fields that have been contaminated with foodborne pathogens, that they actually reduce the survivability of those pathogens. In other words, they decrease the amount of time that you have to wait between uh, having a contamination issue and actually being able to plant another crop that might be susceptible to, to, to causing a problem with the foodborne pathogens again. And I think that's kind of that same principle again, that you're, you're just getting more stuff going on in the soil, all of which is acting antagonistically towards other things in the soil, all of which breaks things down and kind of disrupts those cycles for organisms that we maybe don't consider to be desirable. Yeah, that's, that's totally correct. That's, that's exactly what I was referring to. And uh, some of that even actually goes back to some very interesting ecological uh, principles um, that are at this point, you know, 50, 60 years old that have to do with um, different, basically different strategies of different microbes and that a lot of the pathogenic microbes um, can grow and, and will take advantage of conditions um, where there's only maybe like one uh, good food source or where, you know, if you see like a little bit of rot on a melon, um, that's almost always going to be associated with some of these pathogenic fungi are going to be, you know, feeding on what's really like a smorgasbord of sugars. And it has to do with... That, that those pathogenic microbes are often set up to uh, really ramp up their, their speed of uh, reproduction um, in the presence of like, a, like an, easy, an easy food source, like a, like a slightly broken or cracked melon. And um, whereas the better, the, the bacteria that aren't harmful uh, to us often have a very different uh, strategy, a more like long-term strategy for, for growth um, and development. And so what you're doing when you're putting cover crops in is you're making, you're making a system in which those uh, non-harmful bacteria are in, are in that situation where um, because they make, uh, because they invest and grow in a, in a certain way that is more long-term, they can do that over the course of time that the cover crop is in there and and beat out like just in a competition sense beat out those pathogenic fungi or uh, and pathogenic bacteria over that long term whereas if it's just a bare field well there's nothing for those beneficial or non-harmful bacteria to grow on and cause that change in the environment what about weed control you said you said cover crops for weed control and that's a place that i'm really interested in and in how cover crops fit in and i know that on my farm when we started really paying attention to cover cropping. We made some real strides with weed control, uh, but it was hard to, it was hard to, to give the cover crops enough attention to make that work consistently. 
Yeah, and a lot of it, honestly, with the cover crops and weed control has to do with timing. Um, it's not so much that these cover crops are just going to naturally get rid of weeds. In fact, um, you know, just as a word of caution, I know situations in which people have grown cover crops and actually increased their weed problem because they kind of had a, um, you know, a, I'm going to put that cover crop out there, that field's taken care of, and now I can forget about it sort of attitude. And, you know, one of the things I, I remind people quite often is, you know, before you decide to start doing cover crops, you have to plan ahead and realize that they are something that requires management, but that that management that you're doing now will reap more benefits in the future with reduced management, right? But that if you just leave that field alone, because to you it's taken care of right now, that can actually come back and bite you. Um, so cover crops, again, when you're going to use them for something as like as a weed management tool, um, for the short term, you may actually be paying more attention and doing more things with that cover crop during that time period than you normally would uh, with, with a cover crop. So an example of that is um, it's important to recognize that, you know, when you grow something like rye, uh, annual ryegrass in the field, and you till that in at the end of the season, um, rye doesn't really do a whole lot right there at the end of the year, right? It grows really slowly. And there's a whole big flush of biennial weeds that will germinate at that same time. Shepherd's purse, um, a lot of different cresses uh, will germinate during that time period. And, um, and they can really uh, take root and get um, take hold of them, take hold during that time period. Now, if I'm going to use those cover crops as a weed management tool, you know, what I may need to do is just take a tine weeder through, um, you know, maybe late in the fall or maybe early in the spring and disrupt those weed, weed flushes and just let that rye get up a little higher so that it can start being the weed control, right? So sometimes it takes a little bit of management. But one of the places I really love uh, using cover crops is really in terms of getting rid of some of the, the summer weed flushes. And uh, I had a, a couple things that were my favorites. One was, you know, the use of buckwheat for just a short-term time interval um, between, between maybe a summer crop and a late fall crop. Uh, you know, you can put buckwheat out there and get it up and down in a three to four week, week period in the middle of summer. And, um, and, Again, you might not think, well, what's it doing in that three to four week period? Well, one of the things it's doing is it germinates so fast that um, that it'll get out of the ground, grow, and then create a very dense canopy um, out there on that field to the point where you can also get a bunch of summer weeds that'll germinate right at that same time, but their growth will be slowed dramatically by that buckwheat. And so uh, when, if you just take it down three weeks later, you've simultaneously gotten rid of an entire flush of weed. So if you take it down in the proper way, and what I mean by that is you don't want to till like too deeply into the soil again because you have to st stir up a new weed seed bank. Um, so if you take it down in the proper way, you, you will have gotten out an entire weed flush that's no longer going to compete uh, with that crop. And... Uh, Another thing, of course, is that you've had a cover crop growing on there. Those weeds would have germinated anyway, but if they were growing out there uninhibited, they would have a chance. You know, some of those things can go to seed extremely rapidly. So if you're going to 
leave that alone for four to five weeks, you may have just, um, you would have had to be out there managing the field anyway. Right. Right. So it, it's just another way. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the best ways with those summer weeds um, where cover crops can make a big difference. Another great one um, that I, that I like, you know, one of the classic complaints of course is, is I have thistles in my field. Right. Right. And thistles are incredibly hard to get rid of. Um, and, and you can only send employees out to dig and pull thistles so many times before they will just quit. So, uh, <laughs> um, cover crops can be a great way, uh, again, to, to manage those, but you have to do it in a very specific way. So you have to remember that part of the reason why thistles are so hard to get rid of is because they have massive root storage, you know, capabilities, um, and they're clonal. So if you go out there and just try to do something like rototill that section of the field to get rid of those thistles, you're actually just making the problem worse because you're cutting those roots up into little pieces, but each one of those roots can now grow into a thistle. Or well, if, typically you don't even get down as far as the, as far as the storage roots, because those are oftentimes down eight, 10, 12 inches. Yeah. Actually, a, a hilarious story from one of my coworkers was that he was, he was pulling thistles. He used to work for Easy Bean Farms um, out west of the Twin Cities, and uh, he was out pulling thistles, and it was a pretty nice soil. It was pretty loose, and he pulled one thistle, and the thistle, like about a foot away, actually pulled down into the ground and then pulled <laughs> up through the, you know. So um, they're, they're, very diff they're very difficult to get rid of. Yeah, you really have to eradicate like a whole patch at one time, or they're just going to grow right back in. So there, it, one of the best methods for doing this is actually to do something that's going to run them out of energy. You need to make them use up the amount of energy that they have stored in that root system. You know, again, so cutting a thistle off right before it flowers, you know, well, that's great. That prevented that thistle from, you know, putting more seeds into the environment. But I unfortunately have also allowed that thistle that entire period of time to build up more, you know, root storage. <laughs> so, um, so the way I like to take care of this is, is you have to use a smother crop, but you want to use a smother crop that allows the thistle multiple chances to try to regrow. So you want a smother crop that you're going to mow multiple times during a growing season, right? So what, what you're doing here is combining a knowledge of how this weed functions and then trying to match up a, a cover crop that will allow you to manage that weed, uh, you know, specifically against its strengths. And the, the thing I love the most for that is Sudan grass. Um, so if you, if you plant Sudan grass in May, you know, you're, you're a good ways away from when the thistles are going to um, set seed and uh, you're going to take them down once then so you can run them out of, out of a little bit of energy right during the establishment period. They're going to start growing again right at the same time as the sudan grass. But what I tell people with sudan grass is you always want to mow sudan grass when it's about five feet tall. And so every time, if you go out there every time and you mow the sudan grass off, you're mowing the thistle off at the same time. But the, the sedan grass will always grow faster than the thistle. So the thistle has gone through some period of time already where in order to keep functioning, it's having to draw on its root reserves. Now, you, now by mowing it, you're stimulating it to grow again. So it's going to tap into more of those root reserves, and it's going to try to grow again. 
but it's going to get outgrown again by the sedan grass. And so you can, in a good season, you can easily mow sedan grass five times before frost. You mow it five times, even even here on the 43rd parallel, and let it get five feet tall each time? Yeah, that's right. Um, You can actually get, in in terms of dry matter, you can actually get nine tons of dry matter per acre um, off of a sedan grass crop, like if you're going to harvest it for forage. It, it's an amazing, ama- it, gr- it grows so fast when you hit the heat of summer, like when you mow it, if it rains, it, you know, by, in a couple days, it'll grow a foot. Wow. It's, it's so fast. It's, it's one of my, one of the most fun crops to just play around with. I've, I've played around with sedan grass a bunch. Um, but again, you can see how effective that can be at actually depleting you know, the energy reserves of that thistle, you know, and, uh, and so using strategies like that, uh, you know, you, you, again, you got to pick a cover crop that manages against the strengths, you know, of a weed, um, but it can be very effective. All right, Alan, with that, we're going to stop and get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with more on cover crops with Alan Philo from Midwestern Bioag. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of living media for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depends absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. Produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients that I could to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found that what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's pre-buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price, with the best shipping options, delivered at a time that works best for you. Plus, their shared truckloads program organizes shipping to other regions in ways that gets shipping prices down to the level you'd pay right there in the great state of Vermont. Feed the soil. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by FarmFan. Most farmers market customers only visit the market two or three times per season, and there are plenty who make it less often. Market dates simply get forgotten in the wash of soccer games, brunch dates, commuting, and other commitments that keep would-be market customers from becoming regular market shoppers, not to mention the challenges to your customers of knowing when market season begins and ends or keeping them on schedule for irregular winter markets. FarmFan lets you send a text message reminder to all of your customers, taking the detect fork out of the equation. Plus, you can let customers know what you'll have at market that day, and even offer your FarmFan special deals to increase the number of market customers who come specifically to see and buy from you. Unlike emails and social media, text messages are always on. 98% of text messages actually get read compared to 25% of emails and as little as 4% for some social media channels. Who doesn't check their phone when it buzzes? Visit the show notes page for this episode or the sponsor page at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash sponsors for 25% off your 6 or 12 month subscription to FarmFan. Turn your well-meaning occasional shoppers into regulars and create a following. FarmFanApp.com. All right, and we're back with Alan Philo talking about cover crops. So, Alan, before the break, you were talking about mowing Sudan grass, and you were talking about mowing five-foot-tall Sudan grass five times a season. Um, that's a lot of green matter. 
What kind of tool are you using for mowing something like that? Well, I just used to use a brush hog. Uh, worked just fine. Um, part of it is, uh, part of the tool that you're going to choose is, is um, going to be dependent on, you know, how fine you want that mode and uh, whether you want it like pushed off kind of into a windrow, which is, you know, what a, what a brush hog or batwing mower is going to do. It's going to kind of make little windrows or if you want it chopped really finely, like with a, with a flail mower. Um, you know, I, it's amazing what you can mow, um, you know, even with a, with a decently, you know, sized flail mower. Um, I used to mow down green uh, sweet corn crops. So, you know, and those will easily be six feet tall uh, and much thicker stalks than a, than a sedan grass field. So again, uh, it's more dependent on how you want that residue to, to go onto the field. Uh, with a lot of sedan grass, I, I really always like to grow clover underneath the sedan grass. And um, um, when I did that, I always wanted to mow in a system that would kind of take the residue and push it into a row. Uh, because if I, if I just use like a flail mower and all that, you know, five feet of green matter went down straight onto the soil, it would smother out the clover that was underneath. So just trying to match up, you know, that tool. Um, you always have to think about how that tool functions, uh, where that tool is going to put residue, and how that matches up with what you actually want to have happen um, in that next stage of management on the field. Huh, that's interesting because I always go to the, the flail mower as being the default, but you're actually saying there's a place for, for multiple kinds of mowers. Uh, yeah, and you know some of that's in terms of time too. Um, you know, we had pretty large fields at Gardens of Vegan. Um, you know, I know like uh, John Peterson at Angelic Organics has fairly large fields of cover crops. And we had gone with basically like a, a batwing mower. So it's basically like a gang of three, uh, you know, three brush hogs together. And I mean, you can cover fields super fast with that. And that reduced our total amount of time management on the cover crops, you know, in terms of mowing by two thirds, if not even more. And, um, you know, so lots of different tools uh, in, in terms of speed of management and in terms of what you want to happen with that residue. It's not always about chopping it up, you know, really fine. And some of that depends on the, on the plant. But if, if I'm working with sedan grass um, and I'm taking it down at the right time before it becomes too woody, before it starts becoming lignous, if I'm taking it down when it's still green and lush, even that kind of big green lush plant is not going to get totally chopped up by the brush hog, it's going to push into a windrow, you'll be surprised at how little of that is left, especially after just one, you know, tillage pass in the spring. And especially if you have clover grow up over it, kind of the very same thing we were talking about earlier with the kale stalk, um, because I always did that and I have clover sown underneath that crop. Those clovers come up, they cover that residue. That residue is almost always completely gone, almost before I even get into the field. Great. So on the subject of tools, then, you know, we talk about something for mowing the cover crop, obviously, you know, rototiller or chisel plow or whatever you want to use for being able to incorporate the cover crop. What are you using for establishing a cover crop? You know, establishment's really quite simple. Um, cover crops, uh, depending on how complicated you get with mixes, a lot of cover crops are really just some sort of a small grain or something that you can run through, or, you know, a traditional seed drill. Um, you know, on about a six inch row spacing. Um, so 
you know, what I've always tell people is you can just go to some farm auction. If you're looking for a way to establish cover crops, uh, if you've got a small farm, you can just pick up like an old six foot John Deere Van Brunn or International Harvest or regular seed drill. And uh, those seed drills, uh, often you, you open up the cover and they'll have seeding rates on there for just about anything, um, small grains, vetches, peas. And, you know, really what you're trying to do is you're just trying to match up a seed size to a setting. So even if it's not on there, you know, you, you can match up some seed size that you have to some seed size that it's listed for and make an approximation on the, on the seeding rate. Um, the things I tell people to look for are really you just want some with a galvanized box and you want to have double disc openers because they, they tend not to plug up and you want, and you need to grease it regularly, but just one of those good old drills, they're fairly inexpensive and the larger your farm is, the wider one you want because um, the more ground you can cover in a single pass. But they actually occasionally will even see these really old models um, that are just like four rows you know, six inches apart, and they're actually made for drilling cover crops in between rows. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, what about that? What about for for seeding in between rows? Because assuming that we're not going to spend our entire summer at auctions trying to find that one that's, <laughs> that's set up to do four, four rows at a shot, you know, if, for folks that aren't interceding things like you were talking about doing in the kale, what, what, you said you went out with the Whirlybird seeder. Is that pretty much the standard way to get that done? Yeah, that was my standard. And if you if you want to do more at one time, you know, you can get a um, they some of the three point cone spreaders will actually have uh, the ability to to dish the to to uh, broadcast out cover crop seed. Um, they also make some you know special three modified three point. Uh, devices that are basically whirlybird for seed or you can just walk the field i mean i could easily get you know 10 acres um seeded down in the course of a morning you know so what i would do is go out and, and broadcast in the morning and then i'd spend the afternoon cultivating and uh, i'd have the whole thing cultivated and done you know uh between that day and the next day sometimes i couldn't get all 10 acres cultivated but um i get that seed out there because i knew i was going to get it done over the next couple of days so it doesn't take that long um, to, 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 you know, to, to under, to under sow something, um, especially when, you know, a lot of times if you're using clover, you're at really low, you know, pounds per acre. It's not like you're going to be walking through with, you know, a hundred pounds of seed you're doing, you know, maybe four to eight pounds of seed per acre. So it's not a lot to just walk the field. Right. Now, if you're doing something like oats on a, you know, or rye on a couple of acres of ground, doing that whirlybird cedar while you're walking through the field, that gets to be a lot. I've done that before. And it's, it's not a really a very fun way to spend the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Somehow I, I managed to avoid that particular situation. Um, that's where I, I, I don't, I don't have a situation in which I've underseeded a crop with a, with a grain crop, um, you know, like that. I always did some sort of uh, actual tillage to incorporate residue in the fall before I would run through, you know, with a grain drill with rye or oats or something in it. Okay. 
And and after seeding, now obviously if you're doing under seeding and then you're coming through with that with that cultivation step to kind of lightly bury the seeds, I understand how that would work with something like a white Dutch clover. But if I'm going out and broadcasting cover crops, say I've got a, a couple acres, I, not enough to have a, to, a grain drill, or maybe I'm running my farm on a BCS, once I broadcast that seed, what do I need to do next? Well, at minimum, what you would want to do is is roll it with some sort of a roller so that you get good seed to soil contact. Uh, the better thing would be to run through with some sort of like, even if it was just a drag behind the tractor, something that's going to mix that seed at least a little ways into the soil. Um, you know, if you're just broadcasting and you're not going to drill, you'll, you know, you'll also see that the seeding rates are usually recommended to be probably about 15 to 20% higher in general because it's recognizing that you're gonna you're gonna lose some because it's not gonna germinate you're also gonna lose some to just birds coming and eating eating some seed so um it is you do always want to try to incorporate it as much as you can with whatever tools you can get a hold of like i said whether that's a drag and then i always recommend rolling a field whether you've done it with a drill or whether you've done it broadcasting you always want to roll for better seed to soil contact helps lock some of that moisture in and, and really helps increase the germination rate uh, with your cover crop and the evenness of the germination, which is really important in terms of uh, weed control. Right. Cause you don't want some stuff that's, that's coming up a week later than other stuff. Right. Because if it comes up a week later, I can guarantee it's going to have some weeds in it. So. Okay. All right. Now, one of the things you talked about earlier in the show, kind of casually mentioned doing cover crop blends and I mean we did a lot of work on my farm with with just simple two crop blends right so we would do oats and peas or barley and peas or we would do something like a, a rye and hairy vetch were you doing more complex blends than that yeah I had made as a goal for myself to just part of it was just fun I was just trying to see how many um, different kinds of cover crops I could get onto the field at one time. But, um, and, and I was doing that really just based on this idea that, you know, you, you never walk into a monoculture in nature or, you know, very rarely, you know, are you going to walk into a monoculture um, in nature? And that um, very rarely do you even walk into a field where either everything's alive or everything's dead, right? And that's really important if you sort of just sort of think of the way like ecosystems function, there's things that are breaking down, those things are releasing nutrients and those nutrients are feeding the things that are growing, et cetera. And so what I started to do is mix together lots of different, um, lots of different uh, seeds, uh, mainly to just sort of make it like what I saw in a more natural environment or even just in a pasture. And what I found was I would get some really interesting benefits from that. Now, I'm, uh, there's been a lot of work and a lot of touting of like specialized cover crop blends that will help, you know, do things like increase your actinomycete levels or uh, help feed microarthropods correctly. And, and I've, I, that's something that I'm really not totally sure, sure of. Um, uh, humans have a lot of trouble predicting the way that, you know, predicting, for instance, uh, how our behavior shapes environments where we can actually go out and count the animals 
Um, and so in a, in a situation in which, right. you know, every square foot of soil can be totally different than the next square foot of soil. I, I have a little bit of issue with people saying that they know how to balance the cover crop, you know, so that they're going to get, you know, perfect amounts of predator prey relationships. I, I, it's, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do here. And I'm rather suspicious of people that claim that they can do that. But what, what I was really just looking for was how can I get this plant system to emulate more what a natural plant system does. So for instance, one of my favorite winter cover crop mixes became um, this thing where I would take rye and vetch, but I would also mix in sweet clover, which I, I figured out just kind of by accident um, grows and flowers on the exact same time scale as hairy vetch. So if I have hairy vetch out there, I might as well just have some sweet clover too. Um, you know, just a little bit more diversity out there never hurts. And different things growing above ground do feed different things growing below ground, which is where some of those ideas came from. And and while I don't, you know, necessarily again think that we can know exactly what's going on, I'm also willing to say, well, you know, willing to say that it's probably a benefit to have more things going on down there than less. And so, I would put some sweet clover in there. And then I would throw some buckwheat in there. Well, and people would say, why are you putting buckwheat in there? Buckwheat doesn't overwinter. And I said, that's, that's fine. Um, because, uh, and I would also throw some oats and I would throw some, maybe some barley in there. And uh, what would happen is that the buckwheat and the oats and the barley germinate much faster than the sweet clover, the vetch, or the rye. And kind of like what I was talking about earlier, where you know, you can actually get, if you're not paying attention, you can actually get some fairly bad biennial uh, weed issues building up on a field where you've planted rye. Um, what would happen is that those, uh, that buckwheat oats and, um, and barley would come up and they would actually act as a smother. Um, they would stop those weeds from germinating, but they wouldn't stop the rye and the vetch and the clovers. And then they would winter kill. And, um, and so then what I had, what you have out there is a situation where you've got some things that are dead and some things that are alive, just like what you see in a pasture or a ditch or almost any other natural, uh, you know, natural system out there that, that we aren't managing intensively. And, and so, you know, again, just based on that, I found that it had this really interesting beneficial effect on, on weed levels. Um, you know, in, in those mixes. The, the other thing I, I really liked to do was uh, trying always to figure out a way to offset some of the things that cover crops can do that maybe we don't want. Um, for instance, you know, back to sedan grass or maybe millet or some of these other very fast growing grass crops that you can put in for summer. Um, if you're not careful, they can, they can tie up nitrogen in the environment and, uh, and affect, your next, uh, affect your next crop negatively right. uh, from that. And so what I was what I was what I was always trying to figure out was how can I get something in here, uh, how can I get more legumes in there, and have mixes where um, I can offset that balance. And so what I started doing was I started taking sedan grass and sowing it at a at a lessened rate, like about 50%, and putting a full rate of clovers underneath it. And then I changed the way I mowed um, in order to allow those clovers to uh, keep coming through throughout the growing season and, and, and be able to get a good foothold so that when that sedan grass winter killed, what I ended up with was a clover cover crop. And, and I was doing it mainly based on trying to get more legumes into the system for nitrogen. But the really great thing that I discovered 
was that it saved me a complete establishment pass in the fall. Um, instead of either leaving the sedan grass stubble out there, you know, dead, and then I'm either going to have to sow something in the spring or just break into that field early and plant, um, I had a clover cover crop out there, which meant that I had done, you know, a primary tillage pass all the way back in, you know, May of one year, and that was going to get me all the way through May of the next year, and I had two distinctly different cover crops on that ground in that time. So that's the way I like to use mixes is, is really you're trying to get, uh, I was trying to imitate natural systems. And then the other thing I was trying to do was trying to get more utility out of that, out of that blend, um, you know, than, than I usually would. And at least for vegetable growers, the other thing that I would say with a lot of mixes is, you know, a lot of the mixes right now, the really hot thing is this tillage radish. Yeah. And that, you know, that's really great, but uh, especially on farms that are basically corn and bean farms and haven't seen any sort of brassica on, on their farm for, you know, 50 years. But um, I don't necessarily recommend that for vegetable growers because predominantly what we grow is brassica. Um, out right. There. So That's, you're basically growing flea beetle magnets in your field. Yeah. Now, what I will say, too, is I don't have any definitive, you know, research or anything that I can cite that says that growing um, tillage radish could, you know, exacerbate flea beetle issues. But just as a matter of principle, until somebody takes the time to actually investigate that, you know, I just say probably have enough brassica out there. Let's concentrate on growing the things that this ground normally doesn't get. And that's what I would say for really anybody, you know, whether it's it's a pasture that's going to be torn up and needs to go through maybe a, a weed uh, a couple of weed flush cycles with some sort of cover crop or whether it's a corn and bean farmer looking to put something different out there, you know, pick something that you, that isn't, you know, the same kind of crop family as you've been growing it. Um, you know, just to, that, that's also going to do a better job of breaking pest cycles um, and breaking, uh, breaking disease cycles as well. So just important things to consider when putting together a mix. You said that with the Sudan grass and clover mix, you were seeding the clover at full rate and the Sudan grass at half rate. So how do you decide about those relative rates? And then how do you set up your drill to do that? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. So most of the time, um, actually, you know, there's a great book out there I would recommend for everybody. Uh, it's called Managing Cover Crops Profitably. It's put It was put out by Sarah. Um, I, probably 10 or 15 years ago at this point. It's a great book with lots of different seeding rates and it has some seeding rates for different combinations in there as well. Um, you know, and I would also say the internet is a great place to look up different seeding rate combinations. But a lot of times what you're doing, you know, if you're sowing, if you're, if you're trying to sow like uh, ryegrass and, and vetch together, what you're going to do is, you know, you're basic, basically trying to create a 50% stand of both of them. So you're going to sow them both at like just above the 50% rate, you know, in the box. And typically you can sow those two together because the seed size is close enough uh, to what you're going to do. Some drills are set up, you know, with, with effectively two boxes, you know, like a large seed box and a small seed box. You know, some people call it the, the clover or the grass box, you know, that'll, that'll be just above or on the edge of the normal part of the drill. And you can actually set that to a completely different seeding rate than the main 
uh, drill box. So that's one way that you can actually do like small seated, large seated seating. Myself, I've always, I've cheated uh, a little bit. You know, one of the things with cover crops too is you have to recognize, you know, you're not trying to harvest this crop, right? And the seeding rates and things that have been developed over time are based on the law of diminishing returns. You know, so basically like once, it doesn't always benefit me to just put more and more seed out there. At some point, those plants start competing with each other. And so it doesn't get me any more yield to put more seed out. But in terms of putting a cover crop out, um, you know, if I have a couple more plants out there than maybe I would want in terms of harvesting them, it's really not doing any damage. Um, Right. And so if I'm going to, err, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to err on the side of, of too much. Um, and so one of the things I've always done is, is I've cheated and just taken uh, small seeds and often just I've loaded the drill first with large seeds and I've poured the small seeds right on top of them and then very carefully just raked them into the very top. And what will happen is they'll settle, you know, because of the vibrations as you're going across the ground, the small seeds are going to settle down in the uh, grain grain drill, and um, I've I've established very nice uh, mixes. I, I've been doing this for years. A friend of mine recently got um, got upset with me because he he claimed that I was cheating, and that I hadn't earned the right to do that. And I sort of looked at him and I said, I don't know. I've been doing this for like eight years, so. <laughs> I think I've earned the right to do it. It's always worked for me. That's a really great suggestion. One other question I've got, I, I know a lot of people thinking about food safety now, a lot of folks looking at, you know, when manure should be applied or compost should be applied. Is If I'm applying fertilizer to my cover crops, so say I've got something growing in the fall, you know, maybe it's an oats and pea blend, maybe it's a rye hairy vetch blend. If I'm putting down compost or putting down fertilizer in the fall, can I credit myself that amount for the next year's crop? Well, I think the first thing that I would say is, you know, in terms of fertilizer, as long as it's not raw manure, if you're putting down some sort of actual mineral, uh, mineral fertilizer or dehydrated slash composted like chicken manure or compost product, those products don't have those time intervals to harvest. And so they can be applied um, you know, I would apply those as close as possible to the actual planting of the crop um, because you want to get as much of that fertility into the crop as possible. Where cover crops are really handy, though, is for doing like raw manure or um, like stacked aged compost that isn't, you know, actual compost that hasn't gone through the number of days, um, you know, at the temperature they require for killing off those pathogens. Um, you know, so if you have basically have some like roughly composted manure and things on the farm, what I like to say is cover crops are a great place to put that on. Because if you think about it, a lot of times you're going to have three to six months of being in a cover crop. You know, if you're applying it in October, you know, you're, you're not going to be back in that field easily until April or, or May the next year. So you're going to be well outside of any issues with uh, harvest dates. And, um, and the other great thing is, um, you're going to do a tillage pass before you put that cover crop on. So you apply the manure and you do the tillage pass. So you've incorporated that manure, you put the cover crop on, and then the cover crop is primed to suck up all those more soluble nutrients out of that, um, out of that, 
degrading manure um, throughout the rest of the fall or the spring. One of my very favorite places to do a really heavy manure application is right before I would seed down like a summer cover crop with a fast-growing teff or a fast-growing sedan grass because uh, that sedan grass and that teff, they, they just they just suck up every last bit of that fertility. Um, and then you can credit that uh, forward, at least in terms of potassium and phosphorus. Nitrogen becomes a little bit more of a difficult thing to credit in that way. And, um, and that, I mean, frankly, I usually do some sort of actual calculation to figure out how much of that I want to credit to a farmer. Alan, with that, I'd like to turn to the lightning round that we do at the end of the show here. What's your favorite tool that you've encountered for growing cover crops? Oh, definitely a seed drill still. I'm going to stick with that same answer. I just love a drill. Um, And part of it, honestly, is just for aesthetic things, too. Um, I think they're beautiful. They're also one of the oldest pieces of agricultural machinery. The design has changed very little, you know, in over 100 years. So uh, makes makes me feel continuity with the past. and, And then it's just such a useful useful tool. Great. Uh, favorite resource for cover cropping information? I think that that SARE book that I mentioned earlier, um, that's probably the most complete uh, place to look for cover crop information. Um, there's another book by SARE too that can be really helpful in planning cover crop rotations. And that book is actually, SARE has a book called Crop Rotations. And it has charts in the back that show different disease crossover vectors. And, you know, sometimes there's just funny little things like uh, hairy vetch is a uh, host for tarnished plant bug. So, and tarnished plant bug um, is something that causes buttoning in strawberries. And so, you know, I, I never knew that until I'd spent some time looking through that book. So that's another great one for just making sure you're not planting something that's going to inadvertently harbor a pest for some crop you're growing. Great. And best advice you've ever gotten about cover crops? Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's easy for you to say, Mr. Pour it all into the seed box and mix it up with your hands and (laughs) seed it at some rate that you just kind of guessed at. Okay, great. And then if you could go back in time and tell your beginning cover crop herself one thing, what would it be? I would tell them to just keep experimenting because um, I think that was one of the best things that I ever did was, uh, you know, I would I would make sure that most of the time I was putting out a blend that I could rely on, but I was always experimenting at least a little bit somewhere and still am with, uh, with different mixes and different ways of doing it. And that way, uh, you don't just get yourself into a rut. And sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes you find something that, that you never would have thought of. Um, so just keep experimenting, keep trying new combos. Awesome. Alan, thank you so much for all the great information about cover crops today. Really appreciate your making the time to be on the show again. Thanks, Chris. I, I appreciate being back. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 69 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Philo. That's P-H-I-L-O. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. You can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes. Leave us a review if you enjoy the show or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and your referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to an ever-growing circle of listeners. One more thing. 
I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I received through the contact form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from. I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.